today we're going to start a series on the book of Titus. Um, so uh, it's a joy to in- introduce this incredible book today. Probably we'll just get through the first few verses today as we introduce the book, and we'll go from there. So I'm going to start by uh, reading it, uh, doing reading a few verses from Titus. It's not going to be on the screen, but you can listen. I'm going to read from the NIV version. Perhaps we could stand together for the reading of God's Word. I'll read verses 1 to 5 as we listen together. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the faith of God's elect and the knowledge of the truth that leads to godliness, a faith and knowledge resting on the hope of eternal life, which God, who does not lie, promised before the beginning of time. And at his appointed season, he brought his word to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God, our Savior. To Titus, my true son, in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus, our Savior. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might straighten out what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So, Father, once again, we just commit our hearts to you in this time. In Jesus' name, amen. 1 Timothy, 2 Timothy, and Titus comprise what we call the pastoral epistles. These are letters that Paul wrote to these younger ministers in the faith with very crucial instruction for the church life and to address issues. And, of course, it's so instructional for us today as a local church. Uh, Titus was a, was a Gentile. He was a Greek, and he'd become a Christian under Paul's ministry. Perhaps Paul even led him to the Lord personally. We don't know. But Paul calls him my son in the common faith. And he'd been with Paul since his early ministry, even as early back as Acts chapter 11, when Paul and Barnabas were in Antioch, the Acts students will be, I know what you're talking about. Uh, Acts 11 with Barnabas and Paul, Titus was there. It seems as though he was actually from Antioch. And he went with Paul and Barnabas when they went to Jerusalem to take the offering to the saints there. And Paul took him along, Galatians 2 tells us, to show the Jerusalem church what a Gentile believer looks like. And it was Titus, Titus the one that Paul writes to in this book. Titus also delivered what is known as the sorrowful or severe letter to the church of Corinth. Titus was the the postman for that letter, took it to Corinth. They'd known each other for over 20 years or so by the time Paul Uh, writes this letter to Titus. They had a history. Their hearts had been knit in the work of God, and he was a special son and friend and co-laborer to him. And they had co-labored together in Crete. Perhaps some of you know that island, that beautiful island in the Mediterranean. And as I studied this, I sensed that God was calling me to, to, to... No, I'm just kidding. Hey, someone has to go there and preach the gospel to those people in the Mediterranean. And the... No, but um, they ministered together in Crete. Um, we know that Paul passed Crete on his way to Rome as a prisoner, probably didn't have time to plant a church 
there at that time. It's possible churches had already been started there because in Acts 2 at Pentecost, it mentions when it lists all the nations represented uh, as, they, as they all got saved in Acts 2 and 3, it says, and uh, Cretans were there. There were some from Crete, so perhaps they took the gospel back with them and that's how the church started. We don't know exactly. But we know that Paul, between his two imprisonments, he went to Rome and he was imprisoned at the end of the book of Acts and then he was released for a time and during that time is when he wrote 1 Timothy and Titus. And then he was imprisoned again and he wrote his last letter, 2 Timothy. It's believed that during that time between the imprisonments, when he traveled, he came to Crete. And it was then he was with Titus and he told Titus to remain in Crete. We read the verse in verse 5. He says, the reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished, and appoint elders in every town. So Titus was tasked with identifying and appointing godly men for the spiritual leadership of the church. In fact, the verses following, 6 through 9, give the criteria or the characteristics looked for in an elder that would be appointed. We'll look at that together next week. But this is an important study for us because as a church, we are looking to appoint an elder. Um, in our recent history, we had one elder supported by uh, godly men who were deacons, um, and then I came as the pastor. I became the second elder, and now we look to appoint a third elder to develop our elders board. And in this time of transition, we will, we will obviously be teaching and, re- and defining what the role of an elder is and what the role of a deacon is. So he says to put in order what was left unfinished. And he's referring to the leadership. For they had started churches, the churches were growing, but there was something that was missing. And it was the defined, appointed leadership in the churches. There was no pastors, no elders, uh, perhaps even no deacons that were appointed at that time. And with the appointment of elders would come the teaching of sound doctrine. And with the teaching of sound doctrine hopefully with the right response in the hearts of the people, would would come godly living, godliness. And actually that's a theme that echoes through this short epistle, through these three chapters. It is godliness or good works that are the result of sound doctrine addressing the heart of each believer. So there was a need for this, and the need was compounded by the fact that there was false teachers. In fact, in verse 11, Paul says, they must be silenced because they are disrupting whole households by teaching things they ought not to teach, and that for the sake of dishonest gain. In verse 16, he goes on and says, they profess to know God, but in their works they deny him, being abominable, disobedient, and disqualified for every good work. Paul doesn't mince his words, does he? These guys are certainly not qualified to be leading or teaching in the church. There's something desperately awry there. They had the knowledge, they had the profession, but their conduct did not, connect, did not represent what they professed to, to have. And that was a living faith in the living God. There was something certainly missing for of course, the, the testimony of a believer, particularly of an elder, should be 
very evident in their life and point to their personal faith. In fact, Paul says to Titus in 2.7, he says, in all things, showing yourself to be a pattern of good works, an example, a model of good works. In other words, the Crete, the Crete, the, those in Crete could look at these false teachers and the hypocrisy and the contradiction, and then they could look at Titus and other elders that will be appointed and see a pattern of good works. And in chapter 2, verse 1, he tells Titus, you, however, in contrast to these teachers, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. And sound there means healthy or wholesome or complete doctrine. Timothy, this is the center of your commission and your calling as an elder and as a pastor. It is that you would be responsible in teaching sound doctrine, wholesome doctrine. And in verse 10 in that same chapter, he says that in every way they will make the teaching about our God, our Savior, attractive. I like the the New King James Version. It says that they may adorn the doctrine of God, our Savior, in all things. That they may adorn or wear the doctrine on the outside. In other words, by their life, they would make the Savior that they believe in beautiful and desirable and attractive for other people. That their lives, their testimony, as they adorn the doctrine, it's not theoretical, but through the mixing of faith and the Spirit filling, it is, it is made evident in their lives. There is something different about these people because of sound doctrine and godliness that is made clear. So there's a clear responsibility for a pastor, isn't there? Not here to entertain or to make you happy, although I hope you are, or to uh, build a crowd or to pamper someone's flesh, but to teach sound doctrine, to teach the Bible, to labor in the Word, and to teach clearly and faithfully, and to exhort people in a life that is born out of that doctrine. Again, because it can't just be theoretical, but it must be something that is born out, meted out, walked out, lived out, in a believer's life. Our lives should be different, and they should be changing still. At work, people should have a sense that there is something different about you, about your life. Because the fruit of truth, and of grace, and of the Spirit, should be evident in a believer's life. Now, the phrase, good works is dotted through these chapters. And you say, wait a minute, I thought Christianity wasn't about good works. Well, it's not about good works for salvation, but it is about good works from salvation. This is what Paul teaches in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 8. He says, we are saved by grace through faith, not of your works. And then in verse 10 he says, but we are saved unto good works. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved unto good works. And that's a clear distinction for us as grace believers. We understand that. The culture of Crete, where poor Titus, God bless him and the blessings of God, was privileged to minister there, but it wasn't the most easy of mission fields. It was very challenging. For in verse 12 of chapter 1, it tells us that one of them, a prophet of their own, said... 
Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. That's a nice description, isn't it? Imagine if someone says, oh, I'm thinking of moving to Peacehaven. What do you think? And they said, well, the people there, they're liars and lazy and idle and wicked and evil, but hey, it's by the seaside. You know. It's like, what? Not the most commendable words to be said about them. And this is where Titus was ministering. This is where these local churches were springing up in this worldly culture. There were young men, young women, older women, teenagers, families whose lives were being changed or redeemed. For God is in the redemption business. Isn't that wonderful? Paul says this to Titus in 2.14. He says that he, God, might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people, zealous for good works. Zealous for good works. This was the effect of the gospel. So as we look at these opening verses... And we recognize that this is so applicable, not just for Crete of old, but for Peacehaven today. We see how Paul introduces himself in verse 1. Paul, and in those days, they didn't write sign off at the end with their name, but they started with the name at the beginning. It kind of makes more sense. You know right at the beginning who's writing to you. Paul. And he introduces himself to Titus. And you say, well, why? He knew, he'd known him for so long. And it's because although the letter was personally addressed to Titus, and it was personal in a sense, it wasn't private. It was to be public. In fact, the letter would serve as a validation of an apostolic commission in Titus's ministry. And people would see where they were going from that letter. So Paul introduces himself, and look how he does that in verse 1. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of of Jesus Christ. And I love this as servant of God. It should be noted that he says, before he says, I'm an apostle, he says, I'm a servant. And that's beautiful, isn't it? Very instructive coming from Paul the apostle to this pastor, Titus, and saying, first and foremost, Titus, we are to be a servant, a servant unto God and to his people. The word is doulos. It's one who serves not out of obligation, but serves out of love. In fact, every author in the New Testament, that's Peter, John, and Paul, and James, uh, each one of them makes a point at the beginning of their letters saying, Peter, a servant. Paul, a servant. John, a servant. For that was foremost in their life and their ministry, that they had been so loved, and therefore they were motivated by that same Agape love. So Paul, a servant. And then he says, an apostle. And of course, apostolos, this means sent one. He says an apostle of Christ, for he was sent by Christ. The doulos expresses the humility as a servant, and apostolos expresses his authority as a sent one. And an apostle had to be someone who had seen the living Christ in 1 Corinthians 9.1. Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Christ, Paul said? And it was one who had the signs of a true apostle. In 2 Corinthians 2.12, I'll read it where it says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you 
with signs and wonders and mighty works and miracles. So the apostles were an unrepeatable group at the time of Christ who had seen the living Christ, and Paul was an apostle born out of due time because he saw Christ on the road to Damascus. There are no apostles today, is basically what we're saying. And the authority of of the apostles are now in the word that they wrote. So he introduces himself, he says, Paul, a servant of God, an apostle of Christ, And then he gives his purpose. No, what is his purpose? To further the faith of God's elect. He gives his purpose. What is his purpose? It is to further the faith of God's elect. Don't you love that? To further their faith. That through the teaching and instruction and sound doctrine, people are growing in their understanding, growing in their faith, growing in their capacity, and growing in their hunger. Our guest speaker and his wife last week said to me, oh, we could see the hunger and the capacity of the people in the church. They said, we visit a lot of churches, and that's not always the case. So it was a blessing to hear that they saw that in this place. And he makes reference to the elect. Now we're going to go deep now. Are you ready? The elect. It's a word that a lot of people are troubled by, but we need not be. What does it mean, the elect? Now I have my position. I'm going to give my explanations and you can work it out for yourself as a Berean. You study the scriptures and you come to your own convictions, but I'll give you my view and position on it. These are just my musings my views. The term election unsettles people, but it needn't. It is a term that is echoed through the New Testament. The Calvinist may say, or a Calvinist may say, not all, depends on whether they're a soft or a hard Calvinist, may say that a person is chosen with no choice of his own. That some are chosen to heaven, and by default, Others, therefore, then go to hell. I had one Calvinist tell me that he said, well, everyone was lost, and God in his sovereign grace and mercy reached down and scooped up some to show his sovereign grace. I struggle with that. But that's what some Calvinists say. That some are fitted for mercy and some are fitted for destruction. But 2 Peter 3.9 clearly says that God is not willing that any should perish. So if God is not willing that any should perish, and it's only about God's will, then surely none should perish. But John 3.16 says, for whoever believes will not perish. So certainly God is sovereign, and no one can get saved without the work of God. Salvation is a work of God for men, not a work of men for God. Certainly no one can be saved without God's sovereign work. It's 100% the work of God that I am regenerated and born again and saved. Sure. But I can't take man's responsibility and will out of that altogether. But the Bible clearly teaches election and also whosoever. It's not always the easiest task to see how they are reconciled, but both are taught in the Scriptures. For example, let's read Ephesians chapter 1, verse 4. Just as He chose us in 
in himself before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love, having predestined us to the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will. Verse 11. In him we also have obtained an inheritance, being predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So that's very clear, isn't it? It says that he chose us. He predestined us. And it was according to his will. But... Let's read on the very next verse. Verse 12 says that we who first trusted in Christ should be to the praise of his glory. In him you also trusted. After you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, having believed, you were sealed with the Holy Spirit of promise. So we clearly see both principles. After you trusted when you heard the gospel, there was an exercise of your will through the power of the gospel, Romans 1.16, the power of the gospel uh, unto salvation to those who what? Believe, Romans 1.16. So, it's clear that God saves, and without him no one is saved. But also, uh, God, our, our, our will is not invalid. So remember, we must remember that God foreknows those who are saved. And I personally see that under considering foreknowledge, that God, God is eternal, he's not bound to time, that he sees the beginning from the end. Simultaneously, he sees all. Of course, we cannot fathom that. But considering God's foreknowledge is key in understanding the principle of election and predestination. For God is eternal, God is sovereign, and God also foreknows everything. So in our little finite understanding, we could think of it this way, that God looks down the corridor of time, he sees those who will respond to the initiations of his grace and the drawing of his spirit and the sounding of the gospel, he sees those who will respond, and he says they are the elect. So foreknowledge comes before predestination. This is what it says in Romans 8, verse 29. For whom he foreknew, he also predestinated to be conformed to the image of his Son. Moreover, whom he predestinated, those he also called. Who he called, he justified. Who he justified, he also glorified. And let's not remember that the major theme of the book of Romans is justification by faith. So right in that chain of events, which is the sum of our salvation, it clearly says that those he foreknew, he called, he justified, and he glorified. Do you feel glorified today? How glorified are you? We're not glorified yet in our experience. That's a part of our salvation we are longing and waiting for. But in the Greek, these words are inseparably tied together. Those he foreknew, he called, he justified, he glorified. For God is eternal and sees and knows all things. Certainly he was the one that did the work. He foreknew, he called, he justified, he glorified, but we were justified by faith in a moment of time. 
we were born again. Now, on last Tuesday, we taught Acts 27, and it's the story of Paul on his way to Rome, and he has a shipwreck. And I couldn't help see this principle in that story. And I know that that's a physical story about a physical deliverance and a physical salvation, and it's different. But nevertheless, it's biblical, and Paul's involved, and I think it's worth mentioning. Here it goes. Acts 27, they're on this ship, they're on a storm. Ironically, they just just left Crete, and they're in the middle of the Mediterranean. They're in this incredible hurricane, and Paul hears from God, and he says to the crew and the sailors, 276 of them on board, he says, don't be afraid, for an angel said to me, sorry, Paul said, an angel said to me, don't be afraid, Paul, you will be brought before Caesar in Rome. Indeed, God has granted you all who will sail with you. So Paul says, listen, it's okay. My God told me that everyone on the ship is going to live. No one is going to die, all 276 of you. But notice what happens in the chapter in verse 30. And the sailors were seeking to escape from the ship when they had let down the dinghy into the sea. So in other words, the sailors, and when the sailors are trying to escape off the ship, you know you're in trouble. The sailors say, oh, we're just going to check down and quick. They're letting down the boat. They're leaving. And Paul, who discerns what's happening, says to the Roman commander, if they leave, in verse 31, the next verse, unless these men stay, you cannot be saved. And you say, okay, wait a minute, time out, hold on. You said everyone will be saved. Yes. But now you're saying, unless they stay on the ship, we will not be saved. Yes. You said that all 276 will be saved. Yes. But God foreknows that at the end of the story, all will be saved. But we can see in the story that man's will was valid. That God knew that under Paul's warning, the Roman soldiers would stop it happening, and no one would escape, no one would leave, and therefore the last verse in the chapter says, and all escaped and all were saved. So God, in that story, through Paul, could look at the 276, and before it happened, call them saved. And it was God who saved them. Without God, they would have all perished. There's no question about that. But also in the story, we see that man's response and will was valid. They could have left, and then they would not have been saved. Right? So it's like kind of one of those movies, those time travel movies, where you think, wait a minute, if he hadn't gone back in time and done that, that would never have happened. And you'd, It's hard for us to grasp, of course. These are eternal things. We are so limited in our finite minds. But for me, I see some measure of, of reconciliation in these two truths. We don't have to deny one over the other, but we just acknowledge that God is God and God knows Some have put it this way, that when you step into heaven, there's a doorway. And over the top of the doorway, it says, whoever believes. And when you go through the doorway, and you look back, it says, the elect. Only God knows who will be saved. So, 
that was a small di- digression. Thank you for enduring that. Okay, so he tells them, he tells Titus that the purpose of his ministry is to further the faith of God's elect. Let's not go there yet. And, he adds on the end of verse 1, and their knowledge of the truth. So he's furthering their faith and their knowledge. And these two things should be something that is being furthered or growing in our life. You should have this sense that in my church, my faith is growing and my knowledge is growing. And if not, there's something missing, either this side of the pulpit or that side. And we need to maybe make the adjustments or pray accordingly because that is what should be happening in our life. We should, there should be a sense that I am growing in my faith. I'm growing in my understanding. I'm not stagnant. I'm not on some plateau. I've been in this place for 20 years and I don't know any more of the Bible than I knew 20 years ago. Something's wrong with that picture. Sadly, many people are sitting in churches and they don't necessarily know the Bible any more than they did 10 or 20 years ago. It's possible. So, and notice this, and unfortunately I don't have verse 1 handy, but at the end of verse 1 he says, to further their faith and their knowledge, and then it says, that leads to godliness. And this is crucial. Paul, right off the bat, verse 1 says, a servant, an apostle for the furtherance of their faith and knowledge that leads to godliness. That it must lead somewhere. What's the point of theology and knowledge and doctrine if it doesn't lead me somewhere? And Paul says it should lead to godliness. Not through outward imitation by the strength of my own flesh, God forbid, not by religious moral response, but through a spirit-filled life in an acknowledgement that I cannot attain to this. I cannot live the Christian life. Someone says the Christian life is difficult, and I say, no, the Christian life is impossible if it's in the flesh. But if it's in the Spirit, there is a fulfillment that is in the economy of grace. Now, in verse 2, the godly living is accompanied with a living hope. Right? So further their, their faith and their knowledge that leads to godliness in hope of eternal life. Isn't that beautiful? The godly living is accompanied with a living hope. And the word hope is lost a little bit with us in the, in the English word. Because when we say hope, we say, well, I hope it will happen, like it's a 50-50 chance. It's this weak, vague idea that I, I hope, if everything works out, maybe it will happen. That's certainly not what is being said here. There's an assurance. It is the most sure expectation that you could have about something, and why? Because the one who has promised is God, and he emphasizes the point by saying, who does not lie? So if God is God, and God is true, and God does not lie, and God has promised, it's not, well, maybe it will happen. There's an assured sense that it will happen, and therefore I have a valid expectation today. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. I have a living expectation, a breathing, longing, and just waiting for the day. I don't know when it is, but it's not a question of if it's coming or not. For God has promised, and God is true. 
Kate was there, I'd expect an amen to come right, right from there. So Hebrews 10.23 says, He who has promised is faithful. Romans 4.21, Abraham was fully persuaded. Oh, isn't that amazing word? Fully persuaded that God is able to do what he had promised. Now, what is the hope? Stay with me now. What is the hope? It's the hope of eternal life. Titus 2.13 says, We wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. And Romans 8.23, Not only so, not only does the creation groan, but we ourselves also who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for the adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And this promise, in which we have a living present hope, was promised before the, end of t- before the beginning of time, at the end of that verse 2. For the eternal God again, chose and promised from eternity past this certain promise to all those who would be in Christ. Verse 3, And which now at his appointed season he has brought to light through the preaching entrusted to me by the command of God our Savior. So Paul says this living hope of eternal life, we, we could condense that to the gospel, The gospel he has brought to light. He has manifested, revealed it through me, the apostle, and the other apostles, and we could also say through the generations, through all preachers of the gospel, it has been made known. But here it was made known through Paul at the appointed season, at the right time, through preaching. And then Paul says in verse 4, with this introduction... (laughs) To Titus, from Paul, to Titus, my true son in our common faith, grace and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Savior. All Titus, Timothy, and all the elders, all the preachers, all the pastors that will follow, these two powerful promises and principles are key to your Christian life and ministry. It is grace and peace. It is grace that has come to you. It is grace that is with you. And it is the peace that flows out of that. For as a minister, the faith cannot be theoretical for you, but it must come through your life. And then we'll close with this verse in verse 5. Paul to Titus. The reason I left you in Crete was that you might put in order what was left unfinished and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So there was a very apparent need in these churches that were growing up in Crete. And he says you must appoint elders. Now, there are different words for this office or for this man in the Scriptures. We see them in Acts 20, and this is when Paul was coming back from his third missionary journey, he stops in Miletus, he meets with the elders of the churches in Ephesus, and he says, um, oh, sorry, I don't have the verse there, but anyway, he refers to appointing elders. 
fact, right there, you can see it, elders of the church. And then a little bit later in verse 28, he says, keep watch for yourselves, for you are overseers. And then at the end of that same verse, he says that you are shepherds of the church of God. Now, the Greek words for these, elders, is presbuteros, and it refers to the spiritual maturity of a man. He might not have gray hair or no hair, but probably he's got a track record. He's been around for a while. He's been through some things, and he's a, he's a student of the word, and probably he, he has, well, he definitely should have, he should have a spiritual maturity. In fact, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3.8, I think it is, not to appoint a novice or a new convert. So an elder speaks of the spiritual maturity. The overseer, episkopos, is to do with spiritual authority. Elders, presbuteros, refers to spiritual maturity. Overseers is to do with spiritual authority. And the last one, shepherds or poimen, is responsible for the feeding of the flock. In fact, in Ephesians 4.11, poimen is translated as pastor, so we can put that right in there. So these three names, elders, overseers, and pastor, refers to the same office. So when we speak about appointing an elder, effectively it's a pastor, an overseer, it's the same office. And we believe in our New Testament model in what we call the plurality of elders with one ruling elder, which we call the pastor. And the purpose of those men in the church is the governance of the church. It's to lead in spiritual authority, to see there is spiritual health and vitality in the church through the teaching and the preaching of sound doctrine and the result being in godliness and unity and a furtherance of faith and knowledge of the gospel. Amen? So let's pray. So Father, we thank you this morning for our opportunity to study the word together. We pray that you would give us uh, reflections on this as we consider this important subject for our church going forward. We pray that you prepare us as a church, prepare our hearts, equip us through the word, and bless our hearts and lives through the teaching this morning. And then we pray that perhaps as someone here or listening online, you are not sure of your salvation. Oh, this is an important moment for you that you would put your faith in Jesus, for he is the Savior and will save you if you believe in him. And just say, oh, Jesus, I put my faith in you today. I trust you. As I hear the gospel, I trust you. I believe in you for my salvation. Please save me today by grace through faith. And for each one of us, hide these thoughts in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.